Have you ever felt like God was making your life worse? Uh, I remember being a kid um, and being taught that someday Jesus would come back and this life would be no more and we would, you know, live with him or whatever. And I remember thinking, I hope that doesn't happen too soon because there's a lot of things that I would like to do before that happens in this life. Um, I want to be able to, the first time I remember having this thought was actually in third grade Sunday school. And uh, they were making, giving us these mirrors that we were making, I don't know. And we were like writing a Bible verse on the mirror thing. And then it, there was a magnet on the other side of the mirror for you to be able to put somewhere. Um, and they said, you could put this in your locker uh, at school. And I didn't have a locker and you didn't get lockers until uh, middle school. And so I remember being in third grade, learning about Jesus coming back and thinking, I hope this doesn't happen until I can use this mirror thing in sixth grade. (laughs) And then I remember hoping that uh, I would be able to get married. And then I remember thinking, I hope I can have a kid or, and maybe you're there. Like, I hope I can have a grandkid at least before Jesus comes back. I'd like to know what that feels like. Or I hope that, and, and, The belief is, okay, Jesus is going to come back and that's good, but that's actually going to make my life worse. We'd rather you stay away until we can experience some of these things that we would like to experience because it would actually be worse once you got here. Like that's really the belief underneath wanting to delay that event. Any of you ever felt that way? Maybe you've not felt it, you know, thinking about, you know, Christ returning. Maybe that was just my own weird, you know, thing. But, but have you ever felt like life with God was worse? Like maybe there are certain virtues that the Christian God is supposed to have and that he wants his people to have, like um, generosity. And that seems like a really great thing. Like we want people to be generous. But then when you're confronted with what you would like to spend your money on, but you've got this little voice in the back of your head that's like, ah, but you ought to be generous. It's like, well, wouldn't my life actually be better just without that? Or maybe this is how you feel about the virtue of forgiveness. Forgiveness seems great when you're the one in the wrong, but as soon as someone has wronged you, someone's hurt you, someone's hurt your kids, then all of a sudden forgiveness is the last thing that you want to think about. And if you took God out of the equation, you wouldn't even have to feel bad about hating this person. Maybe this is just how you feel about morality in general. It's like, you know, there's this thing that your conscience is bothered by, but if you could just remove God, then you wouldn't feel bad and you could actually be more successful. Your conscience is actually like a governor on your success. You would be able to go much further, much faster in this life if you didn't have God. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe this is actually one of the reasons that you've wandered from the faith. Maybe you grew up in the church and you're back here today for whatever reason. Maybe you're visiting someone, maybe someone brought you, but you've, you've left because you found that, that you could actually have more fun and be more successful without God. Or maybe you're here and you're on the verge of quitting. 
But nobody knows because you wouldn't want to say that because they'll judge you and you'll feel like a terrible person more than you already do. But you're on the verge of just thinking, is it worth it to keep following God? Wouldn't my life actually just be better without him? Maybe you're here and you're not a religious person. You're not a church person. And I want you to know we're glad that you're here. You're welcome here. And you picked a great day to be here because we're going to confirm some of your suspicions today. If you've ever thought that my life's actually better and I think that religious people even know that, you're right. The Bible is going to say today, you're right. Sometimes religious people look at you and go, you've got it better than me. So why in the world, if you're not a religious person and religious people are like, man, sometimes it would really be nice to not have to follow God. And why should you? This is a, an important question, whether you're a Christian or not. Why should you stick with God when you can see so many people prospering without him? Why stick with God when you can see so many people prospering without him? That's what Psalm 73 is about. Now, this summer, we're in a series where we're looking at various Psalms. And what I love about the Psalms, the reason we've called the season Songs for Every Season, is the Psalms are a collection of songs and prayers from God's people. And what's interesting is, they wrestle with all of the different questions and all of the different emotions that, that we still have today. These were written over 3,000 years ago. And we're still asking these same questions today. That's remarkable. So Psalm 73 is where we'll be today. I think it's on page 485 in the Bible that's in front of you there, um, if you would like to follow along. We're going to walk through it. And, and see how this psalmist wrestles with the question, why should I stick with God when I see so many people prospering without him? So let's look at what he says. He starts with a line that he was taught. And this is maybe a line that you were taught. Verse one, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. Here's what he was taught growing up. God is good. All the time, he's good. He's good all the time. All the time, God's good. And he's heard that. You've maybe heard that. And so he's starting the psalm by saying, here's what you're supposed to say, okay? God is indeed good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But let me tell you what I was actually thinking, he says. Verse 2. But as for me, all right, I know God is good. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. What is he saying? He's saying, that, that's what you're supposed to say. God's good. But, but I started to question that. I doubted that. And he uses this metaphor to describe that, he says, faith in God, believing that God is good is, is almost like trying to stay on this really difficult path. 
You don't always know where to step and where to turn. And it, it's easy to get off of that path of trusting in God. My feet almost slipped. I almost turned astray. And isn't it interesting that here in this admission that the Bible itself is giving us a prayer about what to do when you question. Uh, Dr. Tim Mackey uh, says it like this. Somehow people's words doubting God have become God's word to doubting people. Isn't that interesting? Isn't there something actually really profound in this? That somehow a person's words doubting God have become God's word to doubting people. That's what the Psalms are. And here's why that is such profound and compelling news, I think, is because the God of the Bible knows us. He knows us. And he's not threatened by questions. He's not threatened by doubt. In fact, he's given us great resources in his word to deal with our doubt. So the psalmist says, I know God's good. I know, I know. Okay. But here's what I was really thinking. I almost strayed from that. And here's what I was hung up on. Verse three. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, verse three to me, is refreshingly honest. Because here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I looked out at the world and there was so much suffering that I, I just couldn't believe in a God who would allow such suffering. Now, there are Psalms that deal with that question. That's not this Psalm. And the reason I love that is because sometimes we can feel what he's feeling and we can just blame it on well, why are there so many bad things in the world? But here, he's actually honest about what the real issue was. He says, I saw how prosperous the wicked were and I just wanted what they had. I just wanted my life to be more like theirs. I'm not hung up on any injustice of God, I just want my life to be better. And it seems like my life with God is worse. I'm jealous of these people. Isn't that honest? Have you ever been there? When I asked the question originally, have you ever felt like God was making your life worse? Did you feel like, no, no, I could never say that. Who would dare admit something like that? The author of Psalm 73, Asaph, he admits it. He's jealous of the wicked, he says, because he sees them prosper. 
And the word prosperity there is a word that you've probably heard, even the Hebrew word. It's the word shalom. It just means well-being, peace. It's comfort and happiness. It's prosperity. He sees the prosperity of the wicked and he describes it like this. Verses four through 12 is just him describing what he saw as he looked at the world. They have an easy time until they die and their bodies are well fed. Verse five, they are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They speak their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, as people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words, the wicked say, how can God know? Does the most high know everything? Look at them. The wicked, they are always at ease and they increase their wealth. And the psalmist says, I looked at, at all of that and I was jealous. I wanted to be able to have that kind of abundance. I wanted to be free from having to worry about the future because I've got so much financial prosperity. I've got so much wealth stored up. I wanted to be comfortable and free from all of these difficult tasks. And these people seem to, to just be free from that stuff. They do what they want. Their imaginations run wild. There's nobody stopping them. They live with such freedom and they're able to do what they want because they're not worried in the back of their mind. Well, what is God going to say? What is God going to do? How can God, what's God going to, they're not worried about that. And that gives them this, this swagger. It allows them to even mistreat the people they don't like. They can get away with anything. And then he thinks, God, is it even worth it following you? Look at his next question, verse 13 and 14. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. What is the point of this, God? That's what he's asking. The non-religious people seem to be having way more fun and way more success. It's the religious people who should be pitied more than anyone else in the earth. Why 
Should I stick with God when I see so many people prospering without him? I was taught God is good to the pure in heart, but it sure seems like he's a lot better to the wicked. I think that this gives us a lesson to learn about our doubts. And that is that many times our doubts are not just brought on by an intellectual question that we have a hard time answering. We tend to think about doubt as something that just happens in our heads, but humans are not just thinking rational creatures. We're more complex than that. We're physical, emotional, rational, spiritual beings. And something has happened in the psalmist's life experience that causes him to question what he believed. But here's what is so remarkable about this psalmist. Is he's taking the time to pause and question his doubts. Why is he beginning to question if he should follow God? Is it because of some intellectual thing that he just can't resolve? Well, how can good things happen to bad people and bad things? Or is it something more personal than that? He realizes, wait a minute, I'm actually just jealous. It's not that I'm so smart that I, you know, God, he couldn't be real. It's that there's something that I feel like I'm missing. And he takes the time to examine his doubt. So when you experience doubt, it's worth pausing to question your doubts. Why are you feeling this way, really? Why are you questioning this, really? Are there intellectual, rational things for you to work out when it comes to your doubts? Absolutely. But doubt and faith are never just rational things. That's what the psalmist helps us see. But then a light bulb comes on for the psalmist. It's like someone gave him a pair of glasses that makes the whole world clearer. Now, what's the light bulb? What's the pair of glasses that came on? Verse 15. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. He says, if I would have said all this stuff that I've just said out loud, I would have betrayed your people, meaning I would have been deconstructing something just based on feelings, not fact. He says, I was operating out of my feelings, not facts. And if I, have, if I had passed this on to people, it would have been terribly destructive. 
because it wasn't true. What I was feeling was not true. Here's how we came to see that. Verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless. Verse 17. Until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. The light bulb moment comes on for him. in the sanctuary. Now, this is kind of interesting because he's questioning God. He's envying the people who live without God, and yet he still finds himself, okay, but I'm going to give this a shot. I'm going to enter into the sanctuary. And the sanctuary um, in the Old Testament refers to the place where God's people would gather. And in the sanctuary, there would be Lots of people gathering to talk and to eat. There were little classrooms where they would study the Torah and ask questions and discuss things. There were bands and choirs singing and writing songs. There were sacrifices and rituals that they would practice. And clarity for the psalmist came while he was in the sanctuary, focusing his attention on God. And so what is it that he began to understand as he spent time around God's people in the sanctuary? I think there are three light bulbs that started to go off, three things that he started to see. First, is he started to think about death. I'm sorry to get super morbid on you. But Psalm 90 says that it's actually wise to think about your death. Teach us to number our days, Lord, so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. He begins to think about death and he realizes that the wicked, even as prosperous as they are, they're going to die. They're going to die. You are going to die. Verse 18, indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end swept away by terrors. And then he uses an interesting metaphor. He says, like one waking from a dream, Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. He says, as prosperous as they might be, in the end, 
no matter how successful they are, no matter how much fun they might have, no matter how much wealth they build up, in the end, it's going to be like a dream. It caused all kinds of feelings in the moment. You were so caught up in it when it was happening. It felt so real, but it's not. It's not real in the sense that it doesn't have any lasting value. Their whole life is just like a dream. And when God, who you think is just asleep, comes, and God, who is real life, you'll just have been a dream. And without God, you won't be caught up in what is real. So he starts to think about the end of the wicked. He starts to think about death and he realizes that without God, death is the end. Nothing lasts forever. We're all just collections of meat, as one atheist said it. We're all just collections of meat on our way to expiring. Do you know how rotten meat gets when it expires? This weekend, I tried to smoke some, uh, this pork shoulder, and I thought that I had another couple days before I did it. When I went to open the package, it smelled horrible. Because that's what happens to meat. It goes bad. It rots, it decays. And that is our life without God. That's his point. You might be the absolute wealthiest and you are on your way to being forever poor. You might be the most connected and you're on your way to being completely alone. You might be the most envied and you're on your way to being totally ignored. You might have the healthiest, most most attractive body and you're on your way to breaking down and becoming bones in the ground or ashes in a jar. And without God, that is it. So the psalmist starts to think, that's what I'm jealous of? Oh, man. Never mind. Never mind. That's the first thing he sees is death. The second thing he sees is love. Look at verse 21. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you. I was being the absolute, just the worst towards you, God. I was all upset in my feelings. I was all jealous. I was all just petty and 
complaining and ram, ram, ram towards you. And I acted like I was so much smarter and knew so much better than you. And I thought that you were making things terrible and that life could be had without you. But now I've come to see God that that was foolish. But even in the midst of me coming to grips with all of this, what have you been doing towards me? I've been like a wild beast, an animal to you. Verse 23. Yet I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. How did he come to see love in the sanctuary? He realized that even in his most arrogant, foolish, wandering state, where was God? Right there. Right there. The wonder of God's grace won't really dawn on you until you realize the wickedness of your own heart. The psalmist comes to see, I was totally wicked and yet you stayed. You stayed with me. You kept pursuing me. You didn't leave me. As he works through his doubts, God becomes not just an idea to him. God becomes what he really is, a person to be known, a person to be loved, a person to be trusted. Why should I stick with God? He would ask, because I know him and he's good. He realizes that God is not an idea to be debated. He's a person to be known and trusted. And in his moment of desperation, what he found was not just a list of concepts or propositions to be believed. What he found in his moment of need, what he found in his darkness was not propositions, but a hand to hold. And so he's taken the hand. He's come to know the love of God. Jameson McGregor is a friend of mine from growing up and he's an artist and he wrote a song called Wanderers and in it, the chorus says, you are faithful in our wandering. You are faithful though we go our own way. What kind of love is this that even selfish fools can live in it? What kind of love is this? Even selfish fools can live in it. He came to see that in the sanctuary. So in the sanctuary, he saw death. He saw love. And he saw 
glory. Verse 24. You guide me with your counsel and afterward, you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart, and my heart may fail, but God is the rock of my heart. God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. He comes to see. He comes to believe that if you stick with God, even through suffering, there's glory on the other side. If you stick with God, even when the world abandons him and prospers, if you stick with God, there is glory to be had. There is life beyond death. There is hope beyond the grave. There is hope beyond a jar of ashes. There is hope beyond just being meat that spoils. There is glory. Do you know what glory is? Glory is weight. It's value, it's worth, it's, it's something that endures, that's, that's worth something because of how valuable it is. That's what, what glory is. And he says, you will be received in glory. You will be glorious with God. Even though you endure suffering now, while he's in the sanctuary, he's looking and he's going, oh my goodness. Without God, I'm going to miss out on that glory. Then give me God. Augustine says, God alone is the place of peace that cannot be disturbed. And that's what he came to see too. He came to see that what he was after this prosperity that he wanted, that he was jealous of with the wicked you can't actually find it there. Not if it's going to last at least. You can only find this glory in God. And so the psalmist sticks with God. Why should we stick with God? when we can look and see so many people prospering without him, because with God, there is life beyond death, love beyond failure and glory that never ends. How do you know that's true? How do you know that's true? In Mark chapter eight, Jesus has a group of followers around him and one of his disciples confesses something. He says, 
Jesus, you are the anointed one from God. You are the king that God promised would come. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. And Jesus says, you're right. And then Jesus says, and I want you to know something. Yes, I am the king that God has sent who will make the world prosperous. I'm the king that God has sent to the world to establish his reign. I'm the king who has come to bring glory to the earth. Yes. And let me tell you what the path is. We're going to a cross. I'm going to go. Everybody who's in charge and everybody with power and wealth Everybody who's prosperous in this earth, those people are going to get together and they're going to kill me on a cross. The most humiliating form of punishment. They're going to kill me. And then after three days, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And the disciple who had said, you're the Christ, you're the King says, now Jesus, come here, come here, listen. You said I was right before, right? You said I was right before that you're the king and all this. So listen, everything else that you just said about the plan for you being the king is stupid. Okay. That's a dumb idea. If you're the king, man, just bring the glory now. Just silence all those stupid, wicked people now. We're sticking with you, man. And so show us the glory. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because you're not thinking about the things of God, but the things of man. And then he says, if you want to be with me, if you want to be my follower, we're not going to the White House. We're going to a cross. We're not going to the bank to count up all of our wealth. We are losing everything at the cross. That's where we're going. But here's the good news. And here's why you should come with me is because you don't get to keep the white house anyway. You don't get to keep the wealth anyway. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but lose his life? So it doesn't really matter if you got all that stuff anyway, we're losing all of that. We're giving all of that up and we're going to a cross. But after three days, I will rise. And someday I will return to the earth with glory. And that's the day that you'll want to be with me. But the only, the only path that leads to glory is through a cross. Jesus says, do you know what Jesus is doing in that story that I just shared? You can read that in Mark chapter eight. You know what Jesus is doing? He's saying, if, if you struggle to believe in the whole life beyond death thing. If you struggle to believe that there's love that goes beyond your failure, if you struggle to believe that with God, there is a glory that will last forever, 
then look at me. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, fix your eyes on me. In Jesus, he can endure the cross. And in doing so, he is demonstrating God's relentless love for wanderers and sinners. Jesus goes to a cross and dies, not for anything that he has done, but for something that we have done. What kind of love is this? What we find in our greatest need is God with us. Literally. We have a hand to hold that was nailed to a cross for sinners like us. And he does not stay dead. He is raised from the dead with power and glory. And someday he will return to judge the living and the dead. If you struggle to believe Psalm 73, look at Jesus. And in Jesus, you'll see a life that goes beyond death, love that goes beyond failure and hope and glory that lasts forever. If you're wanting to look at Jesus, if you've been struggling with doubt, but you would like to have faith, what does it look like for you to look to Jesus? It looks like you entering the sanctuary. That means surrounding yourself with community, committing yourself to learning. There are answers for the questions that you have. There are reasons for belief. It looks like continuing to show up and sing. It looks like continuing to take the Lord's Supper, which is a tangible reminder of God's love for sinners. It looks like continuing to go to the Lord in prayer. And what you find when you get down on your knees is that there's someone who has gone ahead of you. There's someone who meets you there. His name is Jesus. This week I was reading um, this article by um, a man named A.N. Wilson. He's a biographer and writer and newspaper colonist in Britain. And he grew up a Christian and then he became an atheist and then he came back to faith. And he writes this um, this article called Why I Believe Again. And in the article, he tells the story of this um, archbishop in England who um, had a young priest come to him and express doubt. And he said, I don't know what to do with all of these doubts. And um, the, the archbishop, um, he sat in silence for a long time, 
thinking about how to respond. And then he responded by just using this simple phrase. He said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And then he told the priest to continue to worship Jesus in the sacraments and in the gathered worship of the church. And that in time, faith would return. And Ian Wilson talks about how for so long he thought that was such a naive and stupid thing. And then he says, but I am shy to admit that I have followed the advice given all those years ago by a wise archbishop to a a bewildered young man that moments of unbelief don't matter. That if you return to a practice of the faith, faith will return. And that's what the psalmist found as he entered the sanctuary. That's what you can find too, if you will look to Jesus. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your nearness to us. Even when we sin, even when we wander, even when we question, God, you have come near to us in your son, Jesus. You pursue us with your goodness all the days of our lives. You lead us along the right paths for your namesake. God, I pray that you would help faith to arise in me and in this room. Would we live lives marked by love and sacrifice for our neighbors? Would we suffer even for doing good because of the inheritance that's being kept for us. It's in Jesus' name that I ask, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?